going to take a break um, over the next two weeks from our, our series in Acts and uh, consider uh, the season and, uh, and have our hearts and minds challenged and, and devoted uh, toward worship. I, I believe that um, this is a good place to, uh, to, to, to let off for just a couple weeks in, in the book of Acts before we come back uh, and, and take the, um, the, 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 the drive to Easter um, as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. Uh, so we will be, um, we'll be taking a break, but we'll be reading there this morning. We're going to pray um, after the reading of God's Word and, uh, and, and, and consecrate our minds to, to the understanding of what's written there. Uh, but I want to, to take a moment to uh, just highlight a group that we'll be praying for this morning. We'll be, we'll be praying for the, the people of the island of Japan this morning. Uh, in, in an enormous world, uh, it becomes uh, hard for me at times to, to grasp the, the vastness of, of some people groups. So the Japanese are 122 million people. Um, to me, it, Japan seems like just such a small island, uh, but, but that is not the case. It is, it is vast. Um, and uh, for an island that has been um, evangelized or, or had several sweeps of, of people attempting to evangelize them, um, Japan is still largely unchristian. Uh, only 1.2% of the population uh, claim to be Christian, less than 0.3 of the population would be considered evangelical. Uh, and so this is a, a large mission field. Um, they, they are a highly structured culture. And so, um, you know, with, with many traditions, that means that, that embracing the gospel is difficult for many of them. Um, a, a pastor, sorry, a, a professor of mine, Dr. Don Howell, was among the, the Japanese people for 12 years as a missionary, and he said one of the, um, one of the requirements in order to be baptized to, to, to truly demonstrate that someone had left behind their, their family religions, their, their idols, was that they would need to uh, swear that they would not worship any other gods. Uh, and primarily that would mean that they could not make offerings to their ancestors anymore. Uh, that proved to be a a deal breaker for many, many people who are interested in, in following Christ. Uh, and he said that his church remained small for many, many years um, because that was just one of those things people would say, I, I love this Jesus and, and I want to follow him. And he would say, well, will you swear to this after teaching them why they could not worship other gods? Um, and, and many people would say, no, the cost among my family would just be too great. Um, so we ought to pray for them. 122 million people whom God loves still very much in need of the gospel. Let's read uh, Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 51. This is the summation of Stephen's speech. He uh, cries out after explaining his theology and his understanding of the gospel. He, he indicts the people and says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, that's the Sanhedrin hearing uh, Stephen's speech to them, defending himself but indicting them. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and all, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to be here and to hear this scripture read. And in a moment, um, I thank you for the opportunity to expound upon it. And I pray that my brothers and sisters would be blessed by it, Lord. No scripture, the Bible says, is of private interpretation. Uh, no scripture sprang forth from any man's heart. Uh, you led the authors of the scriptures to preserve every word written there with particular purpose. And so, Lord, uh, the scripture meaning something when it was written, it means that today. Its application to our lives may change at different points based on our social standing, our culture, but the essential meaning of it remains the same. And so we pray, Lord, not for novelty and presentation, not for excitement or for the hearing of something new, but as Paul told Timothy, remind them, remind the people of these things. And so I pray this morning that when the word is done, when we have heard all that, that can be said in the time allotted on this scripture, I pray that we would judge it not to be creative, uh, not to be entertaining, but that we would judge the, the presentation of God's word based on its faithfulness. May we not be like the Athenians who judged Paul, wondering if he had something new to tell them. May we be hopelessly out of date, from the perspective of faithfulness to your, toward your word. We build our hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is where we put our trust, not in the edginess or creativeness that can come, but on faithfulness to that message. Lord, we lift up the Japanese people we pray that as those who are believers among them this morning go to worship, we pray that they would be filled with the power of your Spirit, that they would uh, be convicted to share the gospel, Lord. And we pray for conviction among the Japanese people. Many have gone and many will continue to go. We pray for continued blessing for those missionaries. We pray that a discipling movement would rise up among those people and that they would begin to evangelize themselves. We pray for revival in that nation and we pray for a rediscovery of the gospel for a new generation. Father, we pray that you would deliver them from ancestor worship and, and from uh, the, the, the disconnected concepts of Buddhism and that you would allow the gospel of Christ to be exalted in that place that many would turn and find you. Father, I ask that you'd bless the proclamation of your word now as we turn to it. May we see Jesus, and may we accept and delight in his will for our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I, I bring a joke. Uh, I say that to alert you to the fact that there will be a joke. Uh, I believe that perhaps the problem is with me now. I'm, I'm becoming convinced of that. I, I had the opportunity to preach in uh, the chapel at Delmarva Christian High School up in uh, Georgetown on, um, on Wednesday, and uh, it was early, but they did not laugh, except when I insulted Lady Gaga, which I then apologized to the principal for. I said, my words got away from me. Um, they laughed at that. They laughed at none of my jokes. So I just let you know, uh, a joke is coming. Um, This has been passed down, by the way. This was told to my mentor by uh, none less than uh, Marcy Regenthal. 
who none of you know, but except my wife, I, I and she, uh, I and myself, we know her. And uh, she was not one given to, uh, to telling jokes, and so it's been preserved. And she is with the Lord. Uh, perhaps news will reach her that her joke has been told, and you laughed. And there will be joy in heaven. Uh, there was a king who, who had a friend, and the, and the friend had a, a way of reacting. Perhaps you've got a friend like this, quite obnoxiously, always thinking that everything um, was, was good. This is good, he would say. Uh, you may have heard this joke. This is one of the only jokes that I tell. Um, he, he would react by saying, no, this is good in every situation. So the king liked to have him around. They, they, would, they would do all kinds of different things. So when they would go hunting, the king's friend would, would load the rifles for the king. And uh, so one day they're out in the, um, they're, they're out hunting and, uh, and the, the friend loads the rifle and he hands it to the king and the king takes aim and he, and he pulls the trigger and the rifle explodes in his hand, blowing off several of the king's fingers. This is a joke. And, uh, and as the king is enraged and in pain, uh, the friend begins to, to say, this is good. And, and the king says, be quiet. And he throws him into prison where the friend languishes for several years. Well, the king is out hunting at some point, and um, he stumbles upon uh, overwhelming numbers of a tribe of cannibals who take him prisoner. And as they begin to eat through the hunting party, they look upon... This is a, this is a joke, trust me. <laughs> this is good. As they begin to, to work through the party, they come to the king, and upon inspecting him, they reject him because they like their food whole. Because he's missing several fingers. And the friend, upon being released and making it back to his, uh, making it back to his kingdom, the, the king uh, remembers the friend and, and is suddenly uh, uh, despondent at all of the, the pain and the suffering that he goes through. And he, and he calls him to him and he says, My friend, you know, I have... You have suffered in prison. You've been separated from me for years, and, and I, I've hurt you. And, you know, on your birthday, I've demanded extra torture for you and, and all of these difficult things that I've done to you. Can you please forgive me? And the friend says, this is good. And he says, really? How could this possibly be good? He said, if I hadn't blown off your fingers and been put in prison, I'd have been with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Whether the angels in heaven rejoice, I do not know. Uh, but I am, this is my Christmas miracle <laughs> that you have laughed. Uh, we have a hard time with the truth that we ought to rejoice in times of suffering. Because what is bad by our perspective, which we hear that we ought to trust by faith is good from God's perspective, those things do not add up. We have difficulty in rejoicing in suffering. We have a hard time thinking that our individual difficulties can somehow be uh, transmuted or, or transformed by some kind of spiritual alchemy into something good. How, how, can, how can what is bad, how can what is difficult be used for good purpose? And yet that is a truth of the scriptures which demands a response of faith from believers. Joseph confesses when his brothers are, are nervous. They sold him into slavery. Back in, in the book of Genesis, Joseph says, What you intended for evil... God intended for good. What they did to Joseph, selling him into slavery, and then his two long imprisonments, which resulted in him being exalted to the right hand of the Pharaoh, the wickedness done to Joseph was wicked. And yet out of this wickedness, God produced good. This is a truth that as believers, we need to lay hold of. Many of us become Christians. We put our faith and trust in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ, and we believe that we have peace with God, and therefore we will not encounter suffering anymore. We think that trust in God is an immunization from trials and suffering. And the truth is, it is anything but, as we'll see in this passage. 
as we sum up what happens in chapter 7, Stephen has been accused of speaking against the law, against the temple, against the, the land, and against the traditions of the Jewish people. And he was challenged and dragged before legal authorities. He defended his faith not necessarily himself, and indicted the religious authorities for being those who resist the work of God. And upon finishing his sermon, Stephen is then murdered by those who listen to him. An interesting quote in a commentary this week says that the whole affair for Stephen ends in a strange peace. He is at peace with his circumstances as they rush on him. He sees heavens open, uh, the heavens open. He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and he delights to see Jesus. He puts his faith and trust in Christ as they are rushing on him, swarming him. And he even begs for the Lord to show them mercy as they kill him. He is at peace with God and men and therefore is able to be at peace with the world even as the world makes war on him. Stephen was a man, the scripture says, full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man of good faith and we see the fruit of his faith in this instance. His faith is holy in the Lord Jesus. We sang a song last night at the, the Concert of Hope called All I Have is Christ. The chorus is simply, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. We see this embodied in the faith of Stephen. His security was not in retaining an unbruised, unbroken, unharmed physical frame. He did not depend on any set of rights. He perceived his wrongs as being okay from the perspective of the God who would deliver him. And he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was okay with the fate that overtook him because he knew that in this world he would have tribulation, but he cried out to the Lord in faith, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Interestingly, one commentator ties this back to the time when Stephen most likely in the book of Acts could have come to Christ. He would have been in town during the day of Pentecost. I believe it's in Acts chapter 2, perhaps verse 21, where, where Peter says, Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. All those who call on him will not be disappointed. And at this last moment of his life, Stephen rededicates himself, perhaps. He, he, he makes his, as Peter would say in, in, I believe it's 1 Peter, he makes his calling and election sure. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit in his last moments, reaffirming his faith. His security is in the Lord Jesus. Receive my spirit. He's not wishing he'd spent more time at the office. His faith is in the right place. And his outlook is not self-word. It is outward. His concern is not for himself because he trusts in Jesus. His concern is for the fate of those who surround him and murder him. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen embodies what we find in the book of Ephesians where it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Where do we see these words show up in the Gospels? Jesus is on the cross and he cries to his father, receive my spirit into your hands. I commit my spirit. And then he cries out as well, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them, father. They know not what they do. Yet, I believe many of us don't possess a faith 
similar to Stephen's. Now, we've not been in these kinds of trials. Perhaps one or two of us have been in a place where, where there, there was some risk to our life and we had to trust in the grace of Christ to get us through and we were fully dependent on God's sovereignty. But the most, for the most part, I believe we live in a conflicted state where, where we uh, exist partly in the world's groove and, and partly in the, the realm of the Spirit. Like a, like a poorly scratched record, for those of you who are really young, music used to come on these black plastic platters. It was like the size of a dinner plate, and there were grooves in it, and you'd put a needle on it, and, and the, the, the needle would produce sound that came through the, uh, through the stereo. Uh, and if, if you were irresponsible with the record, uh, a groove would form, and the record would then skip much in the way that a modern CD, that was what, what there was before iPods um, many long years ago, uh, a, a modern CD can skip because of a, a scratch. Uh, we, we have been born into a broken world, and we are like broken records or skipping CDs. We often fear for our own physical safety. We, ha- we possess nervousness about the future, and so we feel like we exist in two worlds often. First, I believe we ought to we have to pray for the grace in trial to respond like Stephen and to be holy and totally, utterly committed to our faith in Christ. But second, we ought to actively work to unhook ourselves from being in the world's groove. We need to get out of this rut that we find ourselves in. That means that we ought to actively fight with faith against the world's way of thinking. The world often is nervous about the future, right? All over the place on the internet right now. What is everybody talking about? The fiscal cliff, first of all. Turn left or right, but stay away from going over the edge. That's my financial policy. You know, they taught you in drivers that at some point, right? Like if there's a cliff ahead, don't go over it. Or did they just not need to cover that? Why, why, why is this a, an issue? Let's just fix this thing already. But, but we respond in fear. The other big thing that I see a lot of is right now is everybody's talking about the Mayan apocalypse, which is supposed to happen like what? In two or three days, right? Like the end of the world. The Mayans are gone. Why are we still worried about what they predicted? You know, um, we 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 live in a state, I believe, where the media and and political powers and other people try to keep us nervous. They try to keep us in submission, cowed by fear. What this passage will teach us is we see the reaction to Stephen's death. We see the fallout from it. One, Stephen was not afraid of the external enemy. Sticks and stones can break his bones, and they do. But they cannot take his life. They took his physical life from him, but the scriptures say in the book of Colossians, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. No one in this world can hurt you for real. You are invincible if you are in Christ. And don't let anyone tell you different. The external enemy cannot really hurt you. Theology, Christianity, is not just something nice and moral for the kids. It's not. It isn't just traditions. It is who we are. At the core of our being, at the center, if we are not thoroughly Christian, if we are not hanging our, our hope on particular promises from the scriptures, in times of trouble and trial, we will fail. This is one of the reasons why I believe fighter verses are so important, that we hide God's word in our heart that, brackets, in moments of trial and trouble, we, and brackets, might not sin against God. Think of this one here in perspective, in, 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 in light of what's happened to Stephen. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. This is one that we have memorized. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We think about this and we connect it up to Stephen and and perhaps in the back of your mind, you're saying, that's crazy talk. Christianity is decency and goodness and Christmas and self-fulfillment and praying and receiving positive answers. Yes, becoming who I want to be. No, it's about exalting and glorifying God with the life we've been given each and every moment. Lifting him up as our highest value and saying the world can take our money. It can take our lives. And we're confident that we will still have Jesus and he is more than enough. John Stott analyzes the fallout from Stephen's martyrdom this way. He says first that martyrdom brought persecution. Martyrdom brought persecution. We see the emboldened enemy takes another step forward. The internal enemy lives in, within the church, constantly creeping around, trying to weaken the foundations and cause decay so that the church might crumble through moral compromise or heresy. The external enemy, though, gains strength and power and brings greater and greater levels of physical intimidation and persecution against the church. We see in Acts 4.21, the first time they oppose the church, the external enemy, the, the Sanhedrin, warns the apostles, preach no longer in this name. The conflict escalates and they flog the apostles in Acts 5.40. And now we see in, in the midst of this bold controversy with leadership, we find Stephen martyred. We see the introduction of the person of Saul in this passage. It says that he guards the clothing of those who are murdering Stephen. Saul appears on the stage not as an unsympathetic character or someone who is indifferent. It says that he approves of this execution. He agreed to guard the people's possessions while they killed Stephen. Far from from being a witness of this event or just uh, involved on the fringe of the incident, this event serves as the, the match that lights the fuse for Saul's rage against the church. He does not just agree to be there to help out. He approves of this execution. He is excited about it. He seals it with his approval. And this unlocks the door for greater persecution. The the passage says that Saul began to ravage the church. This word is never used anywhere else in the New Testament. But interestingly, it shows up in Psalm 80, verse 13, in the Greek translation made several hundred years before Jesus and Paul and the apostles were born. This is Psalm 80, 13, describing Israel as a vineyard. We find the enemy of the church, or the enemy of Israel described as a boar. It says that the boar from the forest ravages it ravages the vineyard, and all that move in the field feed on it. The ravaging of the church is the destruction of it. We have moved beyond warnings and floggings, and now we see that that Paul, or Saul at this point, is going to move to imprison men and women. He's going from house to house. You'll remember that they met in these decentralized groups outside of the temple. Saul will move house to house. He will find their meeting places. He will drag them out, accuse them of heresy against the temple and the law and Moses and their traditions, and jail them. Stephen's martyrdom, far from being a wake-up call to the society, look what happens when we take things too far, far from, far from being that, it becomes permission for greater persecution against Christians. Martyrdom leads to persecution. Saul is let off the chain, and he begins to destroy the church. He will move when he has successfully rooted out the church in Jerusalem. He will begin to move to other cities and to bring his persecution on the road. 
Persecution, second, leads to dispersion. Persecution leads to dispersion. In our country, we often throw around the phrase the Judeo-Christian ethic, okay? There's a historical linkage between the, the moral theology of Judaism and the moral theology of Christianity. We connect the two together kind of to say this is our moral basis. This is where we come from as a nation. Let me say this. Judaism is not Christianity. Judaism is not Christianity. We are connected, but the linkage is historical, not theological. We don't truly worship the same God. We do not worship the same God. We ought to have compassion on Israel as we are commanded. We ought to, as I said last week, view them from the perspective of the gospel as enemies, Romans 11 says. But for the sake of the fathers, we ought to view them as beloved of God, worthy of our compassion, and understand that one day Israel to a man, I believe every man, every woman, every child on the basis of Romans 11, will believe the gospel and receive it when they see Jesus. And so like any people, we ought to love them, respect them, care for them. But persecution leads to dispersion. Israel and the church are not the same. And so what we're seeing in this passage, we see the temple leave the temple. The tabernacle itself has never been anything but a symbol of God's presence among his people. They built the temple and the, the ark moved from the tabernacle into the temple. But the temple and the ark have never been anything but symbols. Temple worship was a symbol of what would come when Christ came. And when Jesus goes to the cross, when he takes all of the guilt and all of the burden for all of our sins upon himself and dies on the cross, he is fulfilling the purpose for which all this worship pointed to. Every sacrifice that, that has been made was just a symbol of the salvation that would come when Christ died on the cross. When Jesus dies, what happens in the temple? The veil that separates the, the ark, as it, it contains the ark in the Holy of Holies and separates a holy God from an unholy people, the veil is rent from top to bottom. God emerges symbolically from the Holy of Holies. The, 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 the veil is torn. God no longer dwells in this place. He has come out. The purpose of the temple has been to, to plant the people on a place and to provide a historical context so that when Messiah comes, they will be able to see him. And they'll say, we see in this slain lamb a symbol of the Christ who would come and die on the cross for our sins. John the Baptist, son of a priestly family, points this out in John 1.29 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, these are symbols. This is the Lamb of God who will truly take away our sin." And when Christ comes and dies, and the veil is rent and God leaves the temple, the purpose of the temple passes. And what we see in Acts is the temple, the true temple that God is building, emerge from the temple building. The building in Jerusalem is like the shell of the peanut. Hopefully none of you has a large collection of peanut shells. Once you are done eating them, you throw them away. They are useless. Like old emails. Just get rid of them. We may have some nostalgia. We may have some sense of this is where we came from. But it, it becomes an idol. And so it needs to be put away. Let me, let me root this in Scripture. Notice that the temple has ceased in the thought of the early church to be a building. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? 
and that God's Spirit dwells in you. He's speaking both to the church as a whole and to the individual. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's saying here, resist the internal enemy of moral compromise. You are God's temple, the church, this individual local church in Corinthians. Then he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Where did the, the Spirit or the presence of God dwell prior to this? He dwelled in the temple above the ark in the holy of holies only occasionally coming out to fall upon some judge or some king or some prophet, but then retreating. But when Christ comes and we are adopted as God's children and we are purified from our sin, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why? Because your body is a temple of the Spirit and you are part of the church as a believer, which is the temple of God. Let me just, one more passage to prove this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Persecution against the church leads to dispersion. The church has been confined to Jerusalem. They have surrounded the temple. They have met in the temple, but God is driving them out of the temple. They are moving beyond the land. Isn't it amazing that this theology that we are God's temple which I've just brought up, comes from the letters of 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, written by the man we know as Paul, who at this point is the man known to the early church as Saul, who gave approval to the murder of Stephen and who drove the church out and away from the temple. And here he teaches that the church is the temple and that the physical temple is just a symbol. Isn't that amazing? How do we know the backstory of Paul? Uh, Matthew Henry says that Paul demanded Saul, who would become Paul, who was Paul when this was written, Paul demanded it to be inserted to shame himself and to glory in the free grace of God. The gospel means we are all sinners, we are all fallen. I need to move, and I need to move quickly. Let me just make one application. Uh, the Bible does say that we're to submit to every governing authority. Isn't that interesting? And yet, what happens when persecution comes? The church flees. They don't just stand there and allow themselves to be imprisoned. Interesting. Submit to the government in all areas in which the government is legally able to call upon us to obey and give only to Caesar what is Caesar's and give only to God what is God's. Only God can take your life, with the exception of you having committed a murder. Um, many people at this point would say the church in Jerusalem is being destroyed. This is awful. I'll get into that submission thing more. If somebody wants to talk about it, I'm just going to move on. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have time. I just wanted to point that out. People would say, this is awful. God's built this church and now it's being crushed and destroyed. But John Stott points out that dispersion leads to evangelism. Dispersion leads to evangelism. What we're seeing here is a greater fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to the church. In Acts 1.8, 
Jesus says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see this take place in Acts 2 as many people from all nations come to the, to the land to worship at Pentecost and they hear the gospel and the church is born. We see this church begin to grow exponentially. It's huge. They're, they're making disciples. People are getting saved. We see Gentiles coming but in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, God breaks open the seed barn that he has collected all of these seeds in, and he begins to scatter them and to sow them everywhere. Seeds are not for keeping, they're for sowing. And so when persecution comes, it is our perspective, because we have bank accounts and houses and cars and lots of things that do not fall into the category of portable property, we get nervous. Someone will come and take away my stuff. But, but when, when that point is challenged in our hearts, it's proving that we do not understand our identity as believers, as Christians. We think that our point is to accumulate ourselves in large numbers and to build great big churches and to rejoice together that we're all together. But we're seeds. Luke 12, 24, Jesus says, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They, are, they neither have storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Remember that we have great value to God. As I say this next point, we're more valuable than, than birds, than ravens. Okay. Now, think, think about this next point. Jesus says this, the hour, this is John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When Jesus says glorified in the Gospel of John, he doesn't mean seen to be very shiny. He means it is time for him to die. And then he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates it, his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We look at this church in Jerusalem being torn down. We see Stephen giving up his life and we say, this is bad. To which Luke and the scriptures say, no, this is good. Because the church is scattered from its place of complacency. And when the seed goes into the ground and dies... It produces much fruit. There would be no salvation apart from the death of the first seed, the Lord Jesus, who, who being unique and of his own quality, goes into the ground bearing our guilt and our punishment. And as he dies, our sins are forgiven because they have been punished. But now that he is raised and has departed and has appointed us as his witnesses. It is our burden to go and to be scattered and to be sown that others might hear the word. We might look at coming persecution in our country, and I believe it is coming, and we will say this is bad. And I believe that we ought to hold out and resist against it legally as long as we possibly can, because law is good. But we ought not look at coming persecution and say this is all bad, because God will use it for good. There are many little kinds of death, not just the big death. There is separation from loved ones and friends. There is physical discomfort, the hunger that would come, I believe, from truly being persecuted. There are many different kinds of suffering, all of which are smaller symbols of an ultimate coming, perhaps call to give up our life for the gospel. Stephen gives up his life and the church is scattered. But notice what chapter 8, verse 4 says. Those who were scattered went around preaching the gospel because they didn't fall down and say this is bad. They recognized the opportunity. Satan, in inciting the Sanhedrin to snuff out Stephen, attempts to snuff out the church, but the church grows. The external enemy attacks 
trying to defeat the church, but his attacks always grow the faithful church. The devil has overreached himself in this chapter and undermaneuvered God who has outmaneuvered him. His attack has the opposite effect because the fire of the gospel, when it is truly lit, cannot be extinguished. It burns hotter than anything in the world and repels anything thrown on it to snuff it. Let me share an example. This is from John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts. He says, an instructive modern, this might have been modern when the book was written, now it's kind of like uh, uh, post-World War II history. He says, an instructive modern parallel is what happened in 1949 in China when the national government was defeated by the communists. 637 China Inland Mission missionaries were obliged to leave. Imagine the weeping and the wailing of these people for people who they love. The missionaries are being forced to leave. They're writing letters home saying we're being kicked out. 637 missionaries obliged to leave. It seemed a total disaster. Yet within four years, 286 of them had been redeployed in Southeast Asia and Japan. While the national Christians in China, even under severe persecution, began to multiply and now total 30 or 40 times the number they were when the missionaries left. The exact figures are not known. Now this was written a while back. What Stott does not know because, well, he knows it in fullness now because I believe he's with the Lord. Uh, what, he, what he does not know, or perhaps what you don't know, is that um, if we were to say what is Christianity and to judge it based on what people believe in the largest numbers, we would move from America and we would move to China where there are more Christians than anywhere else. This is a, there's a huge Christian population in China. The church is growing in vast numbers in China and India and South America. This disaster struck in 1949, but the church could not be crushed. It grew. Interestingly, I never saw this verse from this perspective. Jesus says in Luke 12, 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. If you swat at a fire, you spread the coals and the flame increases. When wind comes against a fire, it increases the flame. So let me challenge you as we close with this. Do we truly believe what we sometimes sing? Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he sang, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's word abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you view your life as having this seed-like quality, or instead, is your life so well organized and orchestrated that you are worried? Trust me, I live in this world. I fight this anxiety. My house, my future, my retirement, my, my, my personal well-being, what would I do if persecuted? Or do we truly understand that all of these things do not matter? All that matters is Christ and proclaiming the gospel. Is your passion in the right place? If scattered, would you fall on the ground and lament over all that you have lost? Or would you say, this is good. I could preach the gospel in a new place. And then ask yourself this question. Are you doing it now? Because you have unchallenged freedom to do it. Are you sharing it now? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. I do not point my finger at my brothers and sisters without pointing it at myself. Because there are many times 
I feel like I need to get back to the office or I need to read this book or watch this show instead of thinking this person really needs to hear the gospel. We have grown lazy and comfortable in this country. The moral climate of the country has declined perhaps because of the curse of material blessing. We have been blessed out of obedience. And so, Lord, nobody loves persecution. But we say this, you, Lord Jesus, giving your life for our lives to save us are worth our all. And so if it comes, we say bring it on because you are good and will sustain us through it. If it does not come, we pray that you would wean us off of this world and shape us. Father, may we not see some kind of moral victory in 2016 or 2020 or some kind of revival as an end in itself. May we not say we're so glad America is better again and now we can go back to being lazy and comfortable. Instead, may we seize the freedom that we have as an opportunity to share the gospel. May we be fired up to speak of the good things that you have done for us. What do we have on earth which is valuable besides you? Our hearts and our flesh will fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. May we rejoice in you first and foremost, and not in the victories which will occur today on the football field. May that not be our glory. May our glory not be some thing that we're waiting to receive and unwrap on Christmas morning. May our glory not be breaking the tape at the end of our career and retiring into an oblivion of walking on the beach and taking endless vacations or eating at buffets. May our glory be in pouring out our lives for you as you see fit. From the perspective of the world, Stephen went down in utter defeat. But from the vantage point of Christianity, 2,000 plus years later, it could not be stopped. He could not be shut down. And he did not see ahead of time, Lord Jesus, what you would do through him, through his life. But he trusted you and was ready to give you his all. May we do so motivated out of love and not out of a desire to attain, but out of simply trusting you, the sower, to use each and every seed to the fullest of its ability to accomplish your good purpose. We thank you. We pray your blessing on, on how this word will blossom in our lives. We thank you for the opportunity to be here and worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, if you'd like.